Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review Podcast. My name is Eddie Plout, and today we'll be discussing themes in Mughal imperial identity. Today we have Associate Professor of History, Dr. Lisa Balabanalar. Dr. Balabanalar's work extensively covers the topic of Mughal imperial identity. Dr. Balabanalar, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you, Eddie. So first, as posing a general question from your article, The Lords of the Auspicious Conjunction, in your work and writing on Mughal identity, you discuss the characteristics that tie Mughal expansionism and governing practices to their Mongol roots, as these practices do for many Central Asian kingdoms. Uh, could you give our listeners a sort of brief overview of what the defining characteristics of, the, of this Mongol identity that takes root in Mughal practice might be? Yes, I think first and foremost, their Mongol identity gives the Mughals of India an easily arguable enhanced legitimacy as rulers because they are direct descendants of Genghis Khan and of Timur, uh, known in the West most often as Tamerlane. They have the the genealogical charisma to defend their their argument for rulership pretty much anywhere they choose to go. But beyond that, once they arrive in India and establish themselves with a capital in Agra, they begin referring to such things as Mongol law to defend their political decisions. Of most interest to me is the Mongol succession practices that they emulate, although it regularly ends in accessional wars that rage across the countryside and end up being very destructive. On the other hand, in the true Mongol succession system, they will, it will essentially end up offering them the strongest leadership, and it works for an expansionist empire like the Mughals. Um, so they're insistent on retaining it. Now, one piece of policy that sort of comes up in the, cl- the class you teach on South Asian history and across some of your work is this theme of religious tolerance, which is pervasive throughout the different Mughal leaders. Now, obviously, you have Akbar, who allows Rajputs to come to the royal court. You have policies of uh, ethnic and religious tolerance by Jahangir. Why do Mughal leaders advocate for such inclusive religious policy? Right. Well, there's a there's a little bit of a distinction I'd like to make. The first is tolerance. And there's a lot of tolerance in the sense that Muslim leadership, Muslim rulership is willing to put up with minority religious groups or even majority religious groups that don't represent the state. The Mughals, in particular during the period of Akbar and Jahangir, um, moved beyond tolerance into what I would describe as an embrace of other religions. This is really a fascinating uh, attribute of 16th and 17th century kingship. It's certainly not happening in other parts of the world. And I think you could point to a great deal of really important Persian language literature that defines their governing ideology. On the one hand, there are political treatises that were written hundreds of years earlier for the Islamic rulers of West Asia, which argue that the king is the servant of his subjects and anything that keeps them happy and contented is of greatest value to the king and therefore no one should coerce them to change religions or migrate or any other of a number of things. This is a political ideology the Mughals embrace. They share it across their provinces. But additionally, I would point to the uh, religious literature in Persian, which is so embedded in Mughal royal culture, in particular, the great uh, Persian poets of the medieval period, Hafez, Rumi, Jami, mostly Central Asian Persian speakers, who most famously argue that piety trumps any sort of individual religious identity. 
it's almost an argument for a non-sectarian environment in which uh, religious identity simply takes secondary status over one's actions and one's devotion to God. So it's a pretty compelling argument, not only for acceptance of other religious systems, but actually the embrace and the interest in them, which Akbar and Jahangir openly show. Mm-hmm. Right at the beginning of the Mughal Empire, when you have these reports by Babur back to advisors complaining about the terrible life uh, he's living now here in South Asia. Uh, You discuss how the rulership of Jahangir and Akbar is not only tolerant, but openly including other religious ideologies within their court. Does it take uh, some sort of evolution of thought to get there? Because clearly Babur is not at all happy with his life in South Asia. Yeah, you're so right. Babur is really bitchy about India. (laughs) Babur is crabby as hell. Babur complains about everything, but what he values is an opportunity to establish a Timurid-like empire. And he had attempted to do that in Central Asia. Three times he conquers Samarkand, the Timurid capital. He loses it each time. Northern India and Afghanistan are really the only territories that are left to him. And he has to just put up with the weather, the people not liking him, and essentially the culture that he just doesn't understand and isn't interested in. So you're right. There's an enormous evolution between his approach to South Asia and Akbar's. And it's really hard to figure out what that comes from. Akbar's background uh, is very different, of course. His father had managed to completely lose the Mughal Empire for a while. Akbar was separated from his family as a child, raised by a rebellious uncle under the care of his loving aunt. He came to adulthood in trying to reestablish his dynasty's control over India under the advisory of a Shia Persian nobleman who was his mentor and supporter. And he seems to have just been an extraordinarily open individual, increasingly curious, increasingly intellectually engaged by whatever is around him. I don't think that he represents a particular Mughal evolution. I think he's a bit of a freak, in fact. But the Mughals' passionate embrace of Nasiruddin Tusi's political ideologies and Hafez and Rumi and all of this great poetry and writing that leaves them open to embracing others, that surely is the foundation for Akbar's kind of remarkable shift towards an extraordinary intellectual curiosity. Sort of along those same lines, looking at the way Akbar really changed identity, one point that comes up often in, when studying Mughal history is the failures of Humayun. And uh, Babur is able to be this very successful expansionist starter of the Mughal Empire. Um, and Akbar is really spends his time playing catch up for the failures of Humayun. How important, given the Turco-Mongol style of war and the importance of expansionism to the Mughal and Mongols, is there, is there an, a sense of legitimacy that comes with a, the ability to expand for Mughal leaders? Yeah, and I think some historians have argued that it's an ancient adherence to what is well-known in Chinese history as the mandate of heaven. The Mongols certainly embrace that same concept, that one's military success, governing success, is evidence in itself that you are supported by the gods, the heavens, whatever deity you happen to be anxious to show support from, 
And so this kind of military conquest enhances ruling legitimacy inherently. And of course, failure indicates that the mandate of heaven has been removed. The Mongol, the Turco-Mongol inheritance includes what seems to have been a consistent pattern of expansionism and of conquest. There is no point at which the Turco-Mongol peoples decide that they have enough land or they have enough subject peoples. There seems to be a compulsion to push outward. So given that context and given this mandate of heaven, which reinforces the idea that a successful warrior has the support of the gods, there's nothing to stop them from this compulsion to move outward. Humayun's failure was personal. It wasn't a failure of ideology or of a lack of interest in Mughal, Mongol inheritance. It was due to a lot of features, including his addiction to opium, which is kind of a downer when it comes to being a world conqueror. And Akbar and, and his descendants are adamant that their success is evidence of the god's support of their dynasty. Babur, on the other hand, while you say he was a really successful empire builder, he actually was only successful at the very end of his life. He was a bit of a failure, constantly being repulsed from the regions of his conquest. He was confronted by the arrival of a very powerful Mongol horde from the Russian steppes, the Uzbeks, who drove him and the other Timurids out of Central Asia by the early 16th century. And really, he was unable to defeat them. And it was only because the Delhi sultans who ruled out of Agra and Delhi before him had, the, the sultan had died, his son was a weak successor, that Babur was able to come in and defeat them. It was a bit of a fluke, in fact, although he spent his whole lifetime preparing for it. So my mistake, the, most of Babur's imperial conquest success comes to the south. Yes, yeah. yeah. He, he conquers Kabul pretty early on in Afghanistan and retains that as his seat of power. That's where he declares himself Padshah and establishes himself as the last independent Timurid prince in the face of these Uzbek uh, conquests of the region. But as the last remaining Timurid, the refugees and exiles flood to his court, and he is left trying to support a population of elite princes and princesses who are used to having a great deal. He raids Afghan villages nearby and regrets it later because he's undermining his own tax base, of course. So eventually he decides that he has to expand, and he dresses, should he expand into Central Asia? Should he go south into India? And you know, India's famed for its great wealth, and it, it pulls him south. And there we have this weak, new Delhi Sultan who is not as difficult to defeat as others that Babur had been repulsed by. So along the same lines on the expansionism being an inherent part of the driving force behind a lot of the Mughal imperial calculus, do you think that this approach to expansionism eventually hurts Mughal dominance during Aurangzeb? Do you think that it's to a fault, this desire to constantly expand? Yeah, I think that's one of the defining factors of Aurangzeb's failure as emperor. Aurangzeb will rule for 49 years, as Akbar did, his great-grandfather. And that's long enough to really establish a deeply embedded cultural and political identity. With Akbar, it had been a very much an expansionist 
identity, but it was coupled with this passionate interest in the Indian landscape and the realities of life in South Asia, in other peoples and cultures and religions. So it has some mitigating qualities. Aurangzeb is a little bit narrower, and because he is framing his identity in opposition to a brother who had been their father's favorite and was described as another Akbar, Aurangzeb seems to have taken on a more conservative, uh, narrow identity. I think his reputation as being a fundamentalist is an exaggeration. He was not. Temple destruction is always pointed to as a, a feature of Aurangzeb's reign. And in fact, scholars have shown that there were very few Hindu temples destroyed by him, and those were destroyed in the context of military conquest. But what seems to have driven Aurangzeb too was com competition with his ancestors and this interest in expanding beyond the ability of his grandfather and great-grandfather. So Akbar and Jahangir and Shah Jahan were unable to conquer the Deccan and southern South Asia. Aurangzeb is determined he will do it. He sacrifices almost everything to that goal and is successful. But in so doing, he, he weakens dramatically the lines uh, between the Mughals and their Rajput allies in the north and their allies in Bengal. He establishes new elites with Marathas in the south who don't share the same interests or the same culture, who have their own uh, interests in an independent state. So this compulsion to continue to expand to the very end of the subcontinent ends up becoming the feature that is probably most responsible for Mughal decline immediately after his death. So sort of moving on to our, our final theme in Mughal imperial identity, something that I know you have a great appreciation for is the culture and the arts. It's obviously the, the Mughals love their gardens, the Turco-Mongol identity and the essential place of the garden in this identity, as well as the unique architecture and natural and allegorical art style that emerges from the Mughal Empire. How do you think this Mughal art style is an evolution on Turco-Mongol art that already exists uh, combined with South Asian themes? Or do you think it, it really is its own thing that emerges independently at this time? I know you have a lot to say about this. But what do you think about something like this? Yeah, I, I am fascinated by their extraordinary passion for fine arts, for the visual arts. I don't think it is something you can identify as a an attribute of the Turco-Mongol peoples. As semi-nomadic equestrians, their fine arts were extremely limited. But when the Mongols conquered West Asia, dominated, of course, by uh, Persians and a kind of Iranian cultural base, there they became highly attracted to local traditions of imperial patronage of the arts and of landscape architecture. The Persian kings had been building gardens as part of the imperial landscape for millennia. The Mongols will immediately seize on that, the Turco-Mongols, I should say, because it, it is a, a, partly a Turkish population. They will seize on that as an, an attribute that marks their claims of kingship. So the garden is very much a political landscape and they replicate the Persian model. So they will be building gardens across their territories just as the Persian kings had done before them. And of course, Babur famously builds a garden on the ancient Persian model in every 
area of his conquest, bringing this Char Bog into northern India. So that has to do with earlier conquests into West Asia and the adoption of local traditions of rulership and markers of identity. The fine arts, especially the painting, um, which is so extraordinary in the Mongol in the Mughal context, excuse me, because in part people have an expectation that in the Islamic world there is a rejection of figural images and particular portraiture and things like that, which is, of course, not true. There are parts of the Islamic world where there's an avoidance of figural imagery in arts, but the certainly the Turco-Mongol slash Persianate world wallows in mimetic images of the natural world and of people. The Mughals take what had been kind of a Timurid, Ilkhanid, Persian artistic vision in terms of painting, increasingly focusing on the individual. You know, it's the first time in, in the Islamic world where paintings are being signed by the painters. Biographies are being written about individuals that aren't simply panegyric, but try to get at the sense of the individual person. What scholars have described as a kind of humanist trend among the Timurid Mughals. And then this comes into contact with the rich a legacy of South Asian artwork, drenched colors, dramatic forms and outlines, and perhaps most significant for the Mughals, on top of all of that, is the arrival of Western European art with the Persian Jesuits who arrive at the royal court at the time of Akbar, and then later uh, merchants from mostly England uh, who bring with them religious paintings, personal paintings, and realize very early that the Mughal kings are fascinated by this Western art. They ask their artisans to replicate it in the ateliers of their own workshops to work on shading and depth perception so that by the time of Jahangir, which I consider to be the golden age of Mughal painting, we have true mimetic portraiture that is active and lively, crowd scenes that are packed with action, and all with this deep, gorgeous, jewel tone use of color. So it's a pretty extraordinary imperial art form, and it comes from a variety of sources, and it's an indication to us of how open the Mughal dynasty is to outside aesthetic and cultural influences. They're not narrowly limited to what they came into the room with. They're open to the world around them, which makes them the most fascinating of imperial dynasties. Oh, of course, yeah. The the art style sounds so extensively worldly, almost as if they're almost obscene, like going out of their way to include as much as as many styles and cultures as they can within their own art style. So that about wraps up. Do you have any closing comments for someone interested in studying Mughal history, someone wanting to get into <laughs> learning about South Asia? Well, South Asia in general, of course, is the field that I teach and it's so rich and interesting. It's almost impossible to, to tell people, oh, for this reason, you should study the history of South Asia. There are, it would be easier to list the reasons not to because the list would be much shorter. But within that, the Mughal dynasty, especially in the modern period, I think, represent perhaps to us uh, the human potential to be open and curious and intellectually engaged to be aesthetically sensitive, to pay close attention to the landscape, to nature, to the world around us. 
Um, I don't mean to suggest they're perfect people. They, they certainly have their flaws. Uh, I think alcoholism is probably one of the key points I can, I can make Not about everyone them. would say that's a flaw. <laughs> okay, how about opium use? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're heavy into intoxicants. Uh, and they screw up a lot. But there's this a remarkable set of values that they represent uh, that maybe comes closest to what you can find if you read the poetry of Rumi or Hafez. Uh, which is very life-affirming and loving. And that's why I love my boys. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Balabangalar. This was the Rice Historical Review podcast. Uh, You can find it on our SoundCloud or at ricehistoricalreview.org. Until next time.